Riston Roberts is a sex and intimacy coach, IPSA certified trauma-informed surrogate partner with training in onset intimacy coordination for film and TV, and in consent and restorative practices. She helps clients with sexual dysfunction and with navigating non-monogamy and in connecting to their bodies to access joy, pleasure, and liberation. Riston is sober. I am so excited to talk to them today on Sober Sex. Unfortunately, we had a massive technological meltdown towards the end of the recording, so uh, Riston is rudely cut off when they are explaining what their morning routine is. Uh, So we'll go straight to the outro from there. It's like heartbreaking because it's such a good episode and I really hope that y'all love it very much. I loved talking to Riston as is clear because I say, oh my God, that's so beautiful about 5 billion times. <laughs> please apologize. <laughs> please forgive my uh, redundancy and enjoy this episode because it's super informative and funny and beautiful. Just beautiful. <laughs> Check it out. Excited to be here. Excellent. We're really uh, we. I will continue to refer, refer to like, myself <laughs> as a royal we because there were former co-hosts, but now it's just me. So we are very excited to have you. Um, and we just discussed that you're in New Orleans now. Um, but like, what's how did you kind of wind up there? It's so special. Such a great question. So I live in LA technically, like my apartment is there. That's where I pay rent. But um, I'm definitely sort of a transient human being, and I come to New Orleans a lot. I. I weirdly had started having dreams about it and then just started showing up here. I don't, there's a really incredible decriminalization movement here. So I think it's just that I want to be part of that. Yeah. That's beautiful. Of, of what specifically? Like drugs, oh, sex, sex. Awesome. Yeah, sex work. Yeah. And just the, the dance community here is like, they've had a lot of raids and there's just, just sort of feels like the um, epicenter of that movement at the moment. So that's amazing. And so like, I mean, I don't know, I really, I like, my dad's from New Orleans and my sponsor, mm. we mentioned my sponsors there. So it's like, oh, like it's such a, it's a magical place. But it very really haunted. is. <laughs> yeah. It's real spooky. It definitely feels like the acute apocalypse most of the time, but there's just really nowhere else in the States like it, I think. Yeah. That's really exciting. And yeah. congratulations for kind of like finding a nest. How we'll awesome. see. I'm always surprised <laughs> by what God's up to. You know what I mean? Yes. And I like, I like that being kind of like the leading question, like, God, what are you up to? I just like, I, I said I was ride or die. So here we are. Yes, exactly. I'm like, well, I don't know. It's always, I call it shrug magic. I'm always like, I don't know. Yeah. That's awesome. That's like my only, like, I haven't really figured out keyboard shortcuts except for like the shrug emoji. Yeah. I do the shrug emoji with the sparkle emoji. It's like, I just, who, who knows? Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. So before we get too deep, um, what are your pronouns? She, they. Cool. And like, what is your experience of gender today? You know, I, um, today, I always like have, when I was younger, I really was very eager to like become a woman. I thought that there would be like a lot of freedom and safety in that. Mm. And I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna have to mix because I'm like a loud laugher. Yeah, Uh, yeah, you're like, sorry for reality. Um, And then as I've gotten older, I think in like in queerness, like I really identify more as like femme camp. Um, (laughs) I said, well, I said to a partner who was non-binary, like, you know, I feel like my gender is camp. And they, they were like, yes, cis people don't really say that and they don't really think about their genders. I was like, oh, so I guess I'm sort of cis-ish is what I would say, but yeah. 
That's really interesting because I do think that like even a decade ago, like that conversation wouldn't necessarily be happening. It's kind of part of the reason that we asked that question on the show is that like, I think most of people don't interrogate their gender that much. And we didn't want to kind of do a performative, like, what are your pronouns? And then like, just to kind of seem like we cared, but like, I'm actually have curiosity about like, what is the experience of like, of exploring a gender? Like, what does that feel like for everybody? Cause I think like, it's like colors, you know, you don't have a reference point. You're just like, I guess we agree that orange is orange, but like, <laughs> I don't know what you see. <laughs> right. Totally. And I, I think like because a lot of my work, I'm sort of playing woman, um, you know, like where I'm taking on the role of being like in surrogate partner therapy or even coaching, like I'm sort of representing womanness with a lot of my clients, like cis womanness that I sort of have, I think a little separation there because it feels a little like not a character, but a little um, like cardboard boxy or sort of like a, I'm a cardboard cutout. Does that make sense? Like, like, I'm like aware really, of the mask I'm wearing. <laughs> like, it's like a performancey thing. I don't know. Yeah. But that's so interesting too. Cause I do think like so much of like, I mean, maybe gender expectations, but especially like femme gender expectations are kind of cardboard boxy. And like, I feel like I never figured that out. <laughs> like, I was like, Oh wait, like instead I feel like kind of a golem. <laughs> and like, I definitely like, I feel more like hyper gendered than like non-binary, but I have these experiences where I just don't think about my gender at all. And, and yeah, goblin mode for sure. Like, I feel like <laughs> we all go into goblin mode. It's a very genderless state. You know what I mean? Um, like pulling sweatpants off the floor and being like, are these clean enough to wear? It doesn't matter. <laughs> do not care. <laughs> do not care. But then like most of the time I like want to be uh, in like a big pink fur coat and almost kind of like un uncomfortably over the top. You know what I mean? So. Amazing. I mean, that's so sick that you're like, <laughs> they. <laughs> like they wear the coat. <laughs> like, yes, exactly. And I love it. It's so affirming for me when like people do use they for me because it's like, oh, right. This is just sort of all constructed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It feels like it's like when you talk about it, it sounds like kind of a spiritual axiom of like, oh, this is the mask I'm like wearing this life. <laughs> yeah. I always say it's like, you know, being assigned female at birth is like being assigned a country. Like it really had nothing to do with me. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just sort of worked out that my presentation is in alignment with like what the doctor decided. Sort yeah. Of random. That's that's so interesting though, because I do see some like peers, especially like femme peers who really like embody like the divine goddess energy. And I'm like, what's that like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. No, mine's definitely more like ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so like, in, and I guess kind of to pivot from that question into this idea of like performance, like you worked in film and TV a lot through your young adulthood. And can you talk a little bit about kind of your transition from doing that into like what you're doing today? And like for our listeners, what are you doing today? Yeah, for sure. Yes. Yeah, so I was acting for a while up until like, I think my early thirties. And I just, you know, it's, I was thinking about this actually. Um, I got kind of frustrated for a lot of different reasons. And I, and I talked to my manager at the time, Ray Miller at archetype management, who's great. And I, and I was like, um, I just don't really want to play like bouncing tits number two anymore. And I think, you know, I just, it just doesn't feel fulfilling. It feels kind of icky. And he was like, yeah, there's this myth in the entertainment industry that like women age out of being actors. But the reality is that like around this age, you actually just want, more you're like not happy playing these sort of pretty girl bit parts anymore and I, I thought that was really interesting um and that's a nice that's a nicer way to frame it than like oh no we were like smart enough to kind of remove ourselves from a stupid situation as opposed to like <laughs> you're like oh no the industry doesn't want me yeah, <laughs> I think, human being. right it's like I think that's what people think is happening but in reality I think a lot of people just like develop a frontal cortex and are like this is a waste of my time um yeah and so I decided I wanted to you know, I think the real thing was, I was like, I don't really want to play like, you know, like a, a hot dead girl on a show that I wouldn't even like watch myself. Um, and so I started getting more into um, directing and producing and writing. And one of the ways that I thought I could be useful on set was to get into intimacy coordination. Um, and in doing that was like a it called for more of a um, sex coach background. So I started getting into sex coaching and then that just sort of like weirdly threw me tangentially into that path, which 
oddly then like circumnavigated and now I'm back in training for intimacy coordination anyway. Um, and, and doing like more media consulting and things too. So it's all sort of ended up being like connected in this weird way. That's beautiful. So I'm so like, I'm so curious about the intimacy coordination because it seems like kind of a new role. Like it seems like that kind of post me too, there's actually been more conversations about like what, what consent looks like. And I was kind of on the show. We're obsessed with consent. (laughs) So yeah. Like, how does, how does that, like, can you talk a little bit about, uh, like, the specificities of intimacy coordination? Yeah, sure. So, um, I, yeah, I'm still in, like, learning and discovering this role, but it, it came up a little bit before Me Too, but then kind of, like, got a lot of publicity, I think, as a result of that. It, it, there were intimacy directors, they called them in theater before that, and then with the show The Deuce on HBO, mm-hmm. there's, which was about, like, um, street sex work in like the seventies and the porn industry. So there's a lot of like very explicit sex scenes in it. One of the actresses asked that they like invent a role essentially, or like, um, as basically a liaison between talent production and directors. So that's basically what an intimacy coordinator does is they, you know, find out the director's vision. They communicate with the actor to like create right writer language, send that off to, um, you know, the lawyers make sure everybody's on the same page and then they coordinate with different departments like makeup and wardrobe to be like, what kind of modesty garments are we going to use? And just really to be there as like a, a liaison, but because it's, you know, actors are really trained to say yes to everything yeah. and like not be difficult. And so you basically can be the liaison between those people so that, you know, with consent, it's like the power dynamics. Sometimes we say yes, because we feel like it's not safe to say no. So then that becomes like, the IC's job to sort of like navigate that, I think. That's so beautiful that even it exists because like I know, especially kind of earlier in my like formative sex life, <laughs> that like that, yeah, like I, I felt like I never, I, or I, I, for a long time, I didn't identify with the idea of like sexual assault or rape because I was like, I, I didn't know that saying no was an option. Right. You know, and so to have like a role in, you know, film and television production that is explicitly actually exploring that topic feels pretty revolutionary. Um, yeah. And so exciting. Yeah. Like as a cultural shift. So like for you personally, was it like scary or thrilling? Like how did you feel as you were kind of transitioning into this new role? Not necessarily intimacy coordination, but like into like exploring sex coaching and like outside of like moving out of, you know, being an actor and director and into this new life? Um, I felt completely batshit. I, I like at every corner, I was like, am I out of my fucking mind? Like <laughs> what, what is happening? Like the, the woman I learned uh, sex coaching from is a tantrika. She's in based in South Africa. And I had to learn a lot of those modalities um, from her. And I was just like, what the fuck are we doing? Um, like that just all of it felt crazy. And I'm, I think every, at every point, cause often what happens is I'll have a client reach out to me and then I'll be able to give them from myself like 80% of what they need, but I'll have to learn like 10 to 20% more. So there's this constant expansion that's happening. And I, I often feel like who, who does this? Like why, like, I can't even tell my parents what they do, what I do. Cause they would think I'm so crazy, but I'm really grateful to have like a sober community and like people around me to be like, no, you're not insane because you know, I was so insane for so long. I don't always trust my instincts yeah. still. Yeah. And also I do think that it is a pretty radical thing. Like you said in the beginning of like, <laughs> like kind of a God centered shrug of like, I'm down, I'm down for the path and like, whatever that looks like, I will, I'm, practicing on a daily basis, like trusting my intuition and like following the lead. And even if that feels a little like bonkers. Totes bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I also can't really think of any other, I mean, I'm sure in some other coaching like form formats, but like that requires that much kind of specific uh, new modality per client. Like is there, can, does anything else come to mind that requires that much learning on the part of like the coach or therapist? I'm sure there's like, I would guess like personal trainers or something like that's because I was a personal trainer for a while. Sometimes I'd be like, oh, how do I work with somebody who has like this specific back injury or this mm-hmm. specific limitation or who wants to improve their tennis swing or whatever? Like 
there's that kind of learning, but it's all, this is like, I don't even know anything about Shibari. I got to go learn. You know what I mean? It's like really the world. Expensive. Of sex, yeah. The world of sex is of course, like very large, you know? Um, so there's always something to learn, which is great for me because I tend to get bored easily. So. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. um, and also, I mean, like, so interesting too, because I do think that like, because it is taboo, it, a lot of people have a hard time kind of even talking about like the way they think about sex or kink or like relationship. And so to kind of be able to like, I don't know, hold like this prismatic ball and be like, well, we can enter from this area or, you know, like that yeah. seems really exciting. Yeah. And I work with a lot of clients in SPT specifically that are really, um, you know, it's funny. It's like one of their technical presentations or like the therapeutic implications for why they've been recommended for SPT is naivete, you know, like they just don't know things. And I, I honestly, that's like, those are some of my favorite clients, you know, just debunking and demystifying. I had this one client who um, grew up in a different country where he was not, he had no sex education. And when I was explaining like the menstrual cycle to him at the end, he just had this look of awe on his face. And he's like, women are magical. I have done my job. I was like, I've done my job here. Yeah. That's so awesome. Like what a beautiful opportunity. Um, and I'm, I'm really curious, like, have you seen a change in people's like needs or modalities of healing um, or their dysfunctions post COVID? Like, because I do think that it's been a really kind of, uh, I mean, in so many other areas of our lives, like there's been so many drastic shifts in how we interact, right? So like, have you seen that kind of with your clients? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I mean, it's probably a lot like sobriety too. Like there's the things that we were sort of able to, the dysfunctions or like patterns or whatever we were able to kind of have out in quote, the real world that then when we're locked in our studio apartments are like so much more apparent. Um, <laughs> so I think there's like a more acute urge. People are like, wow, it's, this is not good. Um, and I would also say like post pandemic, if we're whatever the fuck that means, um, that I think it really normalized how much people need um, human to human contact and, and mm -hmm. touch specifically. So I think it, people who maybe would have been able to cowboy it before are, are like, no, I actually do need this. You know, I need like cuddle and touch and connection in that way. I think it kind of normalized that a little bit more. So people are more yeah. willing to be like, I want that. That's beautiful actually. Cause you'd think that like, I don't know. I, I think for a lot of us too, like we got super weird mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and like antisocial or like now I, I definitely feel, especially like in France where they do like, you know, the beast, like the two kisses upon, mm -hmm. like, that's how you enter into any social con context. <laughs> like it's now like, can we do a deep bow and like maybe make eye contact? Like I'm not, please do not touch me. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, I think it's like, it's interesting how it's kind of like a pull push force of like, what are my needs and how do I feel comfortable kind of exploring them in a social context? Yeah. Yeah. I know. I just stared at the wall in for like four months, I swear. It was, it was <laughs> oh. such a weird time. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. And, and also like, it was, it sounds like, when did you start the kind of transition out of like actor life into this new, like a new... couple, yeah, probably a couple years before me, probably around when I was getting sober. So like 2017, 2018. Yeah. Amazing. So you you were definitely able to see like a shift through that mm -hmm. process. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and so kind of now about sex, about your own kind of personal sexual journey, what were some of the first messages you received around sex or sexuality when you were growing up? I was thinking about this as I saw your questions earlier. Um, I feel like, and I was sharing this with my friend because I'm staring, staying at his house now. And he was like, that's so weird. <laughs> but like, I'm like, is that not how everyone grows up? It, it definitely, I like to joke that I was raised to be a second wife. Like I, um, I definitely feel like I was taught that like men earned marriage through status and achievement and that like women compensated that and partnered with men as, and gave them sex as like an exchange because they deserved it. So it was like very heteronormative, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> yes. And also like really capitalistic. <laughs> very capitalistic, like deep wasp culture, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> same yeah. Same. yeah. 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 
Wow. And so kind of how, um, how did it unfold from there? Like, how did you kind of internalize that and take it with you, <laughs> especially as a young actor? Yeah, it was, I think as part of that, and maybe this is also gender, but like, it never felt weird to me in acting situations where it was like, you know, being cutleted to death. It's like where they put all the things in your bra so your boobs look like eight times bigger than they actually are. Um, <laughs> you said cutleted? <laughs> they call them chicken cutlets because they look like chicken breasts. Um, yeah, like none of that felt weird to me. I like knew that that was the job. Um, but I would say like in my personal life, I definitely, um, a lot of my drinking revolved around trying to shove myself into this box of like heteronormativity and like, um, partnering with people who were good providers. And like the thing in me that was like screaming and desperate and hated it was just like, we're just going to pour more alcohol on that. You know what I mean? And like suck it up, you know? And so how did you kind of like discover drugs and alcohol? Like what was that kind of beginning of your, how did the beginning of your drinking or using like align with like your, I don't know, like formative sexual life? Yeah, I think, well, I knew from like a, a young age that I was, I didn't have this language at the time, uh, queer or something. Like I, I was like, I came out to my mom as bisexual, at like 11. Well, I said, I was like, what would you say if I was gay? She said, I'd love you and respect you no matter what. And I said, what would you say if I said I was bisexual? And she said, I'd tell you that you were a selfish slut and a homewrecker. Wow. Um, really? <laughs> Mom. Mom, this was, this was like the 90s. There was like so much anti-bisexual sentiment. It's but real. I mean, that, like even still, I feel like the bisexual erasure is like a real deal. But Right. Um, and I didn't, I would say like with drinking, like I definitely didn't drink alcoholically probably till my mid twenties, alcoholism runs in my family on my mom's side, like pretty hardcore, but it seems to have manifested in the men, which I don't know if this is a gender thing or not, but it tends to be like a lot more bombastic and dramatic and, and intense. And for me, I was definitely like a childless wine mom. You know, there was a lot of like drinking at home. I definitely had like party phases and drugs and things, but, um, it, and it was also very much attached to like that my life wasn't happening. And so I was like drinking to deal with the suffering of being like, why is nothing happening in my life? But then also nothing was happening in my life because I was either drunk or hungover for like a decade, you know? Word. <laughs> I mean, and, and uh, I mean, it's so interesting too, because it's like, it is such a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of like, this is why I drink. So this is why I drink. So this is why I drink. Um, and then like, as a young actor, did you feel like you were kind of internalizing either messages about like addiction or alcoholism or messages around like sex and sexuality that like felt not necessarily like it was your like you're like is this actually like <laughs> happening like is this the world we're in or or was this kind of like a later awakening as you were getting sober yeah I think I the thing I guess as an actor the I knew that like my viability was very much attached to like thinness and mm -hmm. I think there was in my 20s like a real obsession with thinness and attractiveness because those felt like things I could control you know acting unfortunately is like not a meritocracy if you want to be an actor like come out of the right vagina is my recommendation um but I <laughs> those were like the things I felt like I could control so those became like a little obsessive like um like working out and things like that but it as far as like it didn't ever really feel like I didn't feel I felt more sexualized as a waitress than an actress frankly. But, but I think that's because it was like, it was for performance. Does that make sense? Like I never had yeah. any couch experiences or anything like that really. Well, that's good. I mean, like, <laughs> this gives me hope. Um, but, but also I think like, I don't know, we were talking about uh, this in a meeting I was at the, like last week that this idea of there was, it did feel like there was a real toxic time surrounding like, especially uh, femme bodies, mm -hmm. like, in the, the early, like early 2000s around like, what is it like, what they call it, lollipop girls who just have like a head and then like a My a friend super, who, yeah. yeah, my friend was in casting. I won't say her name, but she was like, like bobbleheads, you know, yeah. it was like this, like this tiny prepubescent body and then like this adult head. It's, it's very odd, but. 
that was definitely the look for a minute. Yeah. And like, I know that I definitely, and most, mo, and sadly, like most sober people who identify as women that I know are like, have struggled kind of with that, especially with like in conjunction with sobriety and kind of figuring out sexuality because it's like, Oh, this is, this is my worth kind of attaching worth to like, as you said, like thinness or attractiveness. But I mean, I don't know. That's like, <laughs> welcome to the world kind of. Yeah. And I think like, I never, I didn't, I always, this is silly, but growing up, it was like all the girls I played soccer with had like pictures of Sarah Michelle Geller on their lockers. And it was like, if you didn't want to fuck Sarah Michelle Geller, then you weren't gay. And I didn't want to fuck Sarah <laughs> Michelle Geller. Buffy. <laughs> yeah, I know. They're like, well, if you don't like Buffy, then obviously you're not bisexual. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm not bisexual, but then why do I not feel all of these feelings for men? And I'm just sort of horny, but not for these people. Like what? And I think, you know, I was joking with a friend the other day. I'm like, if I had seen like a butch and femme couple on TV growing up, it would have saved my life, you know, but I don't know. No, totally. I mean, representation does fucking matter. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like Sarah Michelle Gellar is like number one lesbian crush <laughs> from like 97 to 2002. Yeah. Um, that was uh, the barometer. <laughs> how gay are you? Um, and so how did you eventually get sober? Um, yeah, so I was writing and <laughs> miserable and I, um, decided that, uh, if I stopped drinking, I would be a better writer, which is funny because I'd gone the other way and like thought that drinking whiskey and rum would make me like Hemingway and that didn't work. So I was like, okay, well I'll stop drinking and then I'll be more lucid in the morning. So I, I was dry for about six months and it probably goes without saying, but like slowly losing my mind. Um, yeah. And I ended up having a conversation with a, a friend in the restaurant industry who had about seven years in program at the time, I think. And I told him, you know, like, aren't you proud of me? Like, I'm not drinking. And, and he said, uh, oh, are you going to meetings? And I was like, no, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. And he said, oh, you must want to kill yourself. <laughs> yeah, I do. How did you know? <laughs> and he was like, because you're an alcoholic and you need meetings. Like, just go to a meeting, go to a meeting a day for like three months. And if you hate it, you can drop out. And I was just so desperate at that time because I was so miserable that um, that's what got me going to meetings. So, But that's beautiful, though. I mean, that you were open enough to that suggestion because like so many people I know, like who are dry, would still be like three months. <laughs> like, you know, that, that like you were open to it is really kind of miraculous. Oh, If he had told me to, you know, join an ashram, I would have done that. Like, I just was so desperate to do anything. It was I mean, I was probably going to like move home and live with my mother yeah I'll go to some meetings first yeah. <laughs> awesome oh I love I love like hearing kind of where the like the light gets in which crack the light gets in because it's always like surprising you know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and so kind of what changed for you I mean it sounds like that also coincided with like the beginning of this like career transition um so what changed for you in terms of your like your relationship with your body or your sexuality, like as you were getting sober, that kind of allowed that new door to open? Like, how did that unfold? Well, I think, you know, I'd always right before I started going to meetings, um, I had a queer relationship that was like very uh, awakening. But also I was such a mess. I'm sure I was just like a deep inconvenience in this person's life. Um, and then. <laughs> Then when I started going to meetings, I live um, in Highland Park. So like Northeast LA is like pretty queer lesbian area. And um, I just ended up finding all these other newcomers and people who had similar time as me that were also queer. And they just became like my, you know, we call them trudging buddies. Like they just became my, my besties. And we would go to like, uh, like, gay astrology and like these little club things together or go to like um see dynasty handbag and like you know just these things that were very queer and I had my community and I think that like really allowed me to sort of like explore and bounce ideas off people and sort of talk about gender and talk about sexuality and that like in the process of getting sober those two things together like really allowed me the space to like do this sort of self-discovery I guess that's beautiful and like were you surprised by anything that you discovered 
I'm constantly surprised. <laughs> I'm still surprised. Things happen now that I'm like, real, okay, like, wow, that's, that's new. Um, yeah, I think I, I never, you know, people are like, what was your coming out process like? I'm like, continuous. I feel like I still discover things about myself all the time that I'm like, oh, huh. interesting (laughs) but that's rad though because it like it must allow you also to kind of have that like I don't know curiosity when like being in in a a therapeutic role of just kind of like non-judgmental like oh wow that's so cool Yeah, it's really, I tell my clients a lot, there's nothing you can say that's going to freak me out. Like nothing. Like it's just, you know, I don't, you have a belly button fetish. Cool. You have whatever you like to, you want me to dress you up in lingerie. Cool. Like nothing. There's just nothing that weird to me, you know? So I'm so curious, like how, how do people, like what, what makes people, and this is not necessarily on one of the like free screen questions because I'm just winging it but like how do people find out about you and your work like how I mean I recall seeing that like uh, often you work in a team with therapists and but like how what why would somebody go to a sex coach or to see a sexual surrogate like what's the kind of circumstance that brings people to you yeah I would say um so with surrogacy clients um will be referred by a therapist so I only take or consider clients for surrogacy through therapist referral, they have to be seeing a therapist to see me. Um, and for coaching (laughs) for all partners, (laughs) many, many layers of screening. Um, the coaching is kind of, um, broad again. So I I've had, um, several clients who worked in the adult industry or were BDSM like professionals for lack of a better term, who will come to me to, um, create consent protocols or, um, like boundaries and things like that around their work. I've also had a lot of people come to me who are in transition or coming out late in life who just really needed support, like of affirmation and support for that. I know I love that work. Um, Yeah. And the first client I ever had was a young guy who had, um, I don't really like the word dysfunction, but had erectile dysfunction and we worked on that. So it can be, it's, it's pretty broad. That's so exciting, though, because it just I do feel like to have a professional who's like really sex positive and just kind of like down to help is like such a beautiful role to play in some people's lives, because I think it's so hard to kind of find like language for that. I think for a lot of us, especially I feel like everybody kind of like comes into like, I don't know, like sexuality somehow closeted as a result of like Mm. like social social norms or growing up or like any kind of shame and so to have somebody who's just like (laughs) what do you need yeah I think beautiful that's like my big thing is like normalizing um non-hegemonic sexuality and partnership you know like things evolve over time. Like even if you're like 13 and you're like, I'm gay and I know what that means and I'm out, like things will evolve and change over time. I'm not saying you won't be gay, but like just our proclivities, our bodies change. Like the way we have sex as we get older changes, you know? Um, Yeah. And I think just trying to be like, it doesn't have to be this static, static thing that looks a certain way. Like it's, there's so much available. And if it's like consensual and in alignment with you, like that's kind of, okay you know yeah yeah and to kind of have the affirmation as you said around all that stuff is like such a what a like what a loving service to provide um and it's interesting too because I think like on this show we've had a lot of kind of ongoing conversations about consent because excuse me I work in I'm a, a, a DJ and musician and so there's like a lot of like me too music stuff that's going on and how to kind of borrow like practices from like uh, kink spaces surrounding like club focused consent because that's been like you know it's it's difficult in in scenarios where like the primary purpose is to serve drugs and alcohol <laughs> to <laughs> patrons who are like dancing <laughs> with other people like how do you uh, kind of create protocols um, and conversations and like mediation surrounding that stuff and it's so so interesting that you actually like that's kind of a specialty yeah, I, I yeah, I love that work because, um, like the workshopping of it of with the um the leaders in these fields, you know, be they like adult industry or BDSM, it's like 
these people come to me because they're leaders and they, and they want to create safe spaces and they, um, and it's so cool to just like bring in my knowledge and their knowledge. Like, I don't know what happens at like a performer play party. Like you'll have to educate me a little bit here and I'm going to educate you on what I know. Um, yeah, I think it, it is really exciting. Um, yeah. So awesome. And like, do you have any kind of, prefer- like, I know that there's like the fries model or like, um, risk aware consent, like how, like, are there any specific like modalities or, or kind of consent practices that you are, are your kind of go-tos or is it really like situation specific? Like, are there any kind of guidelines that you try and kind of bring into situations where people might not be aware of like the language or whatever? Okay. So I learned about consent from Mia Schachter. Schachter. Mia is Mia Schachter. It's just Mia Schachter is a person that I learned consent from, a consent educator. um, And they taught me a lot about specifically somatic consent. So meaning like, where do we feel our nose and our yeses in our body? What does it feel like when we say yes, but we actually mean no? What does it feel like when we say no and we mean yes? Um, So bringing that to people and also just like allowing people, um, like the protocols are a lot about like, having consent informed discussions beforehand, like having ways to communicate that aren't about asking somebody on the spot what they're down for, like pre pre delineating, like, what are my hard nose? What am I here for? And having like, um, decomp sort of sessions afterwards too. Like, do we check in on our rope bottoms the next day? Have we asked them what they want for aftercare? You know, these kind of things. Um, and just having those sort of protocols in place, knowing that also, human error, er, excuse me, human error occurs. Um, you know, sometimes we misstep and that that's not always the same thing as like deliberate harm. If that Yeah. That's so helpful. I think. And also like naming it as such, because I do think like there's a couple friends who have been involved in kind of, you know, situations where that's been the case and it's been so heartbreaking to watch people do something accidentally and then kind of have to face the terrible repercussions of causing harm, you know, and, um, and what a beautiful thing to kind of allow a space for like growth and learning and, and have language to accommodate, because I think it can be like, especially kind of a within a culture that's like obsessed with, you know, kind of tabloid cancellation and also that is really disembodied, <laughs> like that has n- like not a lot of body, it's like somatic awareness, like to learn that before you even start the discussion of what does like, what is yes, um, is really powerful. Yeah. That's actually why I got into restorative practices and became like certified as a restorative practice practices, um, circle facilitator, because especially in AA, I think we do get a lot of people who come in who've been publicly canceled, be they like public figures or like more niche figures. And I think something we learn in 12 step is that like um, people fuck up and they're not necessarily inherently bad people. I mean, we, I personally can speak for myself. Like I did a lot of fucked up shit in addiction, active addiction, you know? Um, And that I believe most people are capable of change Um, not everyone, but most people, um, and allowing them like a process in which to like address harm and, um, make reparation for harm and change behavior, I think is, is something like we need to see more of that. I think in community, like people who are willing to like guide people through that process, especially when it's like client driven, like the person comes in because they're like, I've been called in or called out or canceled. And like, I, I want to learn, I want to do better. Like, allowing like um, a shepherding process with that person for lack of a better term. Oh, that's, I mean, I that didn't really know that that's kind of what the restor- restorative practices entailed. And like, that's so beautiful. So I'm, do you do it? Like you say, you talk about like a circle, like a community, but also kind of working on a one-to-one client basis. Like how do you facilitate, like making it, making sure everybody feels safe. Like that's such a kind of radical act, like active to ship activity to shepherd. (laughs) Yeah. So usually a client will come to me and be like, I've been called out or I've been canceled and and this is what happened. And so we'll get clear on that. Um, and then begin a process of like, what are your, um, boundary and consent protocols? Like, let's work on this. Let's have some like agreements that I'm witnessing with you around, like, you know, who, for example, like maybe this is totally random and not a client I've had, but like somebody who slept with like, um, 
an employee, right? It's like, let's talk about what your boundaries are around relationships with your employees and create an agreement for yourself. Um, and then in addition, if there have been um, call outs or like specific people who feel they were harmed, I'll reach out to them and do like, like a 90 minute call around what a circle looks like and really like offering them witnessing um, around like what they, how they were harmed, um, what they felt, what they feel now um, and what they want. Um, and then we do that also with like the, in RP, they say like victim offender or the, the two, the language, which is a little bit binary, but that is like traditional language. So we'll talk, I'll also talk with the client around the same thing. And then these people bring um, a support person. So everybody can bring like a roommate, a friend, a therapist, whatever they want to bring. And the circle is held online and everyone gets to share their experience and then talk about how they want to move, move forward, you know? Oh my God. That's so like radically beautiful. Just to, I'm, I'm so moved to kind of like to know that that's a possibility of, of actual restoration, you know, not kind of lip service or not kind of promises to change without like accountability or not like, you know, blaming and shaming, but this idea of like an actual ongoing evolving conversation around like what, how everybody can feel heard and, and met in a, in a space, like what a, what a radical thing to kind of, uh, to be a part of. Yeah. I think it just, the, the one other thing I'll say about it is that like, I just felt, you know, the, when people are canceled, it's like the solution is, is exile, right? We tell what, what people want in a cancellation is they want someone to disappear. They want them to go away. But that person, if they don't do that is probably just going to go to like a, smaller community or perhaps a more marginalized community and create more harm, right? Unless the community kind of like um, is clear with them about what the new boundaries are, I guess is what I would say. I feel like often in cancellation culture, like the solution is exile. What people want, like what the quote mob wants from this person is for them to go away. But there's not, you know, we live in this like globalized reality, like there's not really anywhere for them to go to. So um, we're actually just sort of pushing them into um, communities where there's like less resources yeah. and less um, account of like people being able to like make a scene, you know what I mean? Um, and so I think it is important to have um, alternatives to exile. So that's, I think, what restorative processes are really That's about. super beautiful. And did, I, I'm I, like, I... It does. It's so not kind of clickbaity. It's so like not kind of shame based and aggressive. It's such an interesting, like different paradigm to exist within. Um, yeah, I think our brains, I don't know if it's cultural or if it's just how we're wired, but, the, you know, we love binaries and we default to binaries, you know, whether it's gender, sexuality, um, and also like good and bad. Like, is this person a good person or a bad person? And I think most people are doing the best they can and causing harm all the time, whether they, and most of them don't mean to, it's just part of being human. Yeah. Yeah. And I do like, so is it typically people who have been kind of canceled or caused harm that find you, or is it the kind of community that wants to hold them accountable somehow? No, I've only worked with clients who've come to me um, who've been called out or canceled. Wow. I'm like, I'm so, I'm like, I'm so proud of them. <laughs> like, just because I do think it takes a lot to not kind of go into this place of like, well, I feel shamed. So and exiled. So like, fuck everybody, you know, like, what a courageous thing to be like, actually, can I can I hold space to hear what people are saying? Yeah, what's harder than listening to people tell you where you oh, fucked up? Like nothing. So the hard. <laughs> I definitely, yeah, definitely drank over that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and also again, like I do think twelve step is a powerful kind of teacher in terms of like an amends process, but it's also like you know people come in with so much trauma and so much damage and so much baggage and so much bad behavior that I think it can also be a really challenging place to to feel safe for some people. Um, and I do wonder like what we could do better because like, again, I think a lot about the fact that it was written by like a bunch of like cishet white dudes in the 1930s. And like they, especially around like we talking about like a sex inventory of like, where have I caused harm or like, what have I done wrong? And then the, instead of this idea of like, where was it not my fault? Like kind of coming from a more, not, I wouldn't say victim, but it's like survivor perspective of like, actually like where have I been internalizing stuff that was kind of done to me is my fault. 
you know, because I think mm-hmm. that that's a very different angle from the kind of yeah. white hetero capitalist patriarchy. <laughs> totally. It's, it's interesting doing like um, a men's work and nine step work when it's, I think, yeah, in the book, it's very much about like, where did you beef it? You know what I mean? And I think for a lot of us, maybe for queer people, especially like it's, there's a lot of like, how can I um, make an amends to mm-hmm. myself? And like where, I mean, like my first thing on my fourth step was about like a, an essay and like my sponsor saying like, that wasn't your fault is, was huge yeah. for me. You know, it was so affirming because I had this idea about 12 step that it was all my fault. And I'm here and it must be my fault. <laughs> right. And it's like, no, yeah. no baby. Yeah. No. And like, yeah. And to have the kind of privilege of holding space for people as they kind of have that process. But I also think that like, especially in kind of more old school thinking about like how to be a sponsor, I think it can be like, I I do wonder a lot about like, how do we kind of become as a community more trauma informed because like people don't arrive unscathed, you know, just being the bad guy, like, Yeah. I think like for me, a lot of my drinking was around managing my complex PTSD, which like I didn't know I had, but like now I'm, I do, I've had a diagnosis and like had treatment and stuff ongoing, of course, but I, you know, drinking was like the only good part of my life. It was the only thing that like abetted that suffering, you know, but unfortunately I became addicted to it and then started having the repercussions of addiction in my life, which made me want to totally. drink more. So it's just and also so create more terrible. like potentially traumatic situations, you know, where you're like, and I'm not even here. <laughs> like, oh, Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. like yeah. in recovery, how do you kind of protect your own energy, especially when, or, or refill your own tank, especially when kind of obviously dealing with like, the restorative practices and then also like in in surrogacy like how do you kind of either separate like work from your personal life or kind of have clear boundaries for yourself in ways that feel like present and nourishing because I imagine like that must be a whole other challenge yeah my 2023 resolution is to like have more sexual pleasure in my own life because I can definitely be like the sober workaholic, you know, that's definitely how like my addiction like manifests now um, is just being really committed to work. And I love my job. Like it brings me a lot of pleasure, but I can be um, really tapped out in my partnerships because I'm showing up so much more for other people and the way as, as a sex laborer, frankly, like what my needs are are so different from what they were when I wasn't doing sex labor. Like I, um, I like need a lot more cuddling. I need a lot more like platonic Mm -hmm. intimacy. Even my friends, I'm like always trying to cuddle them and it's like not about sex as much. Um, and having sex that's like very different from, um, I guess like more normative or more, um, a lot of the sex labor I do is like educational. Mm -hmm. So like really coming from a place where like I get to be, um, for lack of a better word, like not in top energy is like really restorative for me. Yeah. Somebody else, please be in charge. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I just want to sub out. Amen. (laughs) Relate. (laughs) Oh, I've been a bit, that's so beautiful though, that you know that about yourself and that you can actually like kind of advocate for your needs and seek partners who are like, have done the, the, you know, the emotional work to kind of be able to offer that in a way that feels like, that you don't have to kind of do the more education. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And also it doesn't like, it seems like the, 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 like being invested in your, in your work is like not, it's, it's not a new thing. You said you stopped drinking because to write more. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I see you. <laughs> only, only. Yeah. That's deep, the deep workaholism, like the deep, um, you know, like puritanical on my, yeah, the father's side is wasps. The mother's side is like Scotch Irish. It's just like work is religion. You know what I mean? How I become holy. (laughs) Finally. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Yes. I very much relate to that. Um, So in recovery, I'm sure you're familiar. There's this idea of like a sex ideal 
or who we want to show up as in our romantic or, or sexual partnerships. And I'm curious if, if you're working with the sex ideal today, either in your work life or in your, your personal life. Wow. So I didn't even think about it in my work life, but because I know what it looks like in my work life is it's really about service and it's really about um, compassion and being a safe, a safe place to be um, the first person who's ever heard something. You know what I mean? Like that's really important to me. And um, I think a lot of people come to me feeling really broken and like, you know, because it's sex, there's all this shame. And so they, so you can't like talk to your buddies over a beer. Like these are some of my clients, you know, about sometimes my penis doesn't work the way I want it to. Like those conversations are not happening. So like being that soft place to land for people um, is really important to me and non-judgment. And it's interesting in my um, personal life, I feel like the reason I have that 2023 resolution is because I have not been really investing in my personal like mm. sex, pleasure, relational life. It's been very like backburnery for me and it's been drilled into my head from the beginning um, through Ipsa and Vina Blanchard, the woman who trained me, like you have to have your own sex life or else you just become like a, like a dry sponge that can't mm -hmm. give anything to anybody, you know? So learning that the hard way as I learned. <laughs> as we must. Way, um, <laughs> Is there another way? As we do. <laughs> People get to, I swear, if you can tell me something and six months later, I will tell you the thing back to you. Like, <laughs> like you invented it. You know, <laughs> 100%. That's Respect. how I roll. So yeah. Yeah. And being like, what does, what, what do I even really want in partnership? Cause it's not something I really think about or strive mm. for that much. And I have a lot of friends who are like really actively looking for partnership and it is not something I think about, you know? Yeah. That that's interesting. Just cause I think it's also, there is such like a, I don't know, like white picket fence kind of heteronormative, like partnership ideal that kind of like gets shoved down our throats until we start to kind of question it and dismantle it. And, but that I remember like, I think, a couple of years ago and it's come up numerous times on the podcast, but like reading Audre Lorde's like uses of the erotic and being like, Oh shit. Like this feels so somatically true about kind of accessing this power source, you know, this kind of like, it's not performative. It's really present. It's kind of like, as you were saying, like women are magic or whatever, but like how to kind of incorporate that in a way that might not actually, the erotic is not necessarily sexual. If that makes sense. And like how to kind of like, feed that and like respect the fuel there because it can be so like if I'm not doing it the way this if it's not like hot and heavy that it like I would somehow like not it and it's like actually <laughs> she's like painting a fence <laughs> you know like writing a poem yeah. right it's funny because it's like it harkens back to like Freud and this idea that you can like transmute your sexual and like fuck Freud obviously <laughs> <you>. but like <laughs> You're like, hold on, is this bitch talking about? You're like, no. <laughs> and now I'm canceled. Um, so <laughs> um, yeah, but this idea of like transmuting that energy into creative mm. outlet is really interesting. It's like, where else am I sexual? Like, I don't know. I yeah, I think that's that's really fabulous. And and I think for me, it's interesting because you know, doing surrogate partner work, like it's very um, controlled. Like I have um, this friend, uh, colleague, Andrew, he talks about um, you're both the, per the person in the dance with the other partner and you're the person above who's on the balcony watching the dance when you're doing like surrogate mm -hmm. partner work. And um, like for me to have the experience in my life of not being the observer, of just being in the dance is like, it's so distinct from doing um, surrogate work of Does course yeah for sure but it's also this idea of like if you train specifically even in like a conscious and conscientious way to disassociate I think it's a very difficult thing to not do <laughs> like yeah and it's almost like I feel like now in my personal sexual life it's I I was joking with a, a friend about this it's like I feel like the lions are at the gate like because I'm constantly in this very like controlled mm. sexual atmosphere that then when I'm, when I come to my own sex life, it's like, there's almost like all this desire that's so overwhelming yeah. to me because I'm so not in my desire generally when I'm doing surrogate partner work that 
it's it's really overwhelming. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like I have to keep the animals in the cages. Yeah. <laughs> For a reason. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but no, but that idea of like, oh fuck, like, wow, like what does it feel to occupy that space? Holy shit. Like it's a surprise, you know, especially I think that like yeah. especially I, I don't know, being socialized as female to have um to, to kind of especially when you kind of come from this kind of puritanical or like, I don't know, um, like, yeah, Judeo-Christian, Abrahamic tradition where, like, it's our fault. <laughs> like, like, it's always, always. our fault. <laughs> and, like, mm-hmm. the, the desire, the exploration of that, or, like, that, like, it's dangerous or somehow, like, yeah, not allowed is um, to kind of override that and and to really be like, oh, no, this is this is my magic. This is my power. I love it. I love this part of myself, and I'm excited to, like, share it in a way that feels safe and present. But, like, holding all of those plates at the same time is, like, <laughs> bonkers, like, so hard. Yeah, yeah. And to flip the switch from being, like, very in control to, like, dancing with lack of control is, like, it's an intense switch for sure know? for sure and i'm like what a beautiful yeah. thing though to know about it because i think that like so much of this shit happens like culturally outside of our consciousness that so you can name it and like do, work with it is so exciting um and so uh he, we like to close with we like to close with the lightning round <laughs> um just to kind of have, no, a, no. have a don't think too hard and it's kind of along the lines of what we're talking about so what is the best way for you to ground and feel secure and embodied <laughs> Oh, um, I like to have disassociation cheeseburgers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know. I've like worked with all these tantricas who are like, I put like frankincense on myself and I do like eight hours of yoga. And I'm like, I ate a cheeseburger on my couch. Like that'll get my <laughs> You're like, while well, watching numerous screens. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say also like moving my body. A lot of times I have to like return to my body in a way that isn't about work, like dance. I'm like, oh, right. Like this is also like a tool for my own pleasure. Mm, you know? That's beautiful. Yeah. This last week we had like a dancer, a sober dance aerobics instructor on. And she, it was just like only about that. Like, how do you kind of like exist within yourself with joy? It's like dance aerobics. <laughs> I listened to that with oh, Pony yeah. Sweat. That's Hell yeah. Yeah. I've seen it. I was laughing because I've seen a few people move through the transition of like getting the queer heart, haircut and leaving their husbands <laughs> as a result yeah. of Pony Sweat. I was like, okay. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Amelia, you do God's work. Um, <laughs> so she can hear me from here. Um, <laughs> what is your favorite? This is a weird one. I didn't remember writing this. What's your favorite household chore? <laughs> I think I just got a robot vacuum. <laughs> yeah, I think probably dishes. Yeah, I don't know. I like it. It feels done. Yeah. You know yes. what I mean? And I, I don't know. I like to sing while doing the dishes. It's like a somatic delight. <laughs> I also, I'm a big bathroom cleaner. I know a lot of people don't like to clean the bathroom, but it's like, I love like how clean and sparkly everything is. It's very satisfying. Yeah, I, this is, I feel like it's like attached to the workaholism when you're like, look at that shit. Look at it. <laughs> So clean. Um, what is the best series, mo- uh, series, movie, or book you've recently binged and loved? Any kind of media consumption that you're like, this is fantastic. I've been watching this German show on now. This is so <laughs> uh, this German show. I don't know what the translation is, but it's the Empress, and I don't. It's like I just, you know, I'm deeply gay, so just like give me a period piece and women talking to each other, and I'm happy. <laughs> it's it's really good though. Okay, noted. The Empress in German Netflix. Um, <laughs> what what turns you on? That's a fun one. Oh, I yeah, surrender. Like mine or somebody else's, I think. Like really seeing my partner in ecstasy or being like I'm held and they are present. Like that again, I guess it's kind of a binary, but when somebody is like really able to like go there or I'm really able to go there and someone's able to hold space or I'm able to hold yeah, space. Yeah, definitely relatable. And like a beautiful thing too, to like I don't know, the that's obsessed with that thing, like the tension of kind of like where is the power here and it, it like if it's secure, it's the best. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, what is your morning routine? <laughs> so I have, I, uh, am very anti-morning sex, which my partners know, and they like think is hilarious. I like spring out of bed. I usually wake up to Lizzo and make coffee. <laughs> and then 
I have like a big, I know I'm no, such a girl. Endless delights. So, <laughs> like so, so problematic. Um, and then I usually make coffee and I'll journal. Um, and I'll do like a little. Creativity, authenticity, body autonomy, mental health, sexuality, gender identity, recovery, recovery, got a special girl.